Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and welcome. It's wonderful to be in your company this afternoon. It is Wednesday afternoon. It is steaming hot outside, as you may know today. Really, really a warm day here in Joburg and a beautiful day, though, and wonderful to be in your company. As we said, it's just gone 11 minutes past two on this Wednesday afternoon. It is the ninth day in the month of Kislev, in the ninth day in this month. That is a month of light. And if we are going to hear some of the story that I'm going to tell you today, it has got a lot to do with Gula, with redemption. And please God, redemption should come very, very soon to all those who need personal redemptions. And particularly, of course, where all our hearts and focus is at the moment on those hostages who are being held, of course, against their will, or being held, kidnapped, and um, in the most heinous kind of circumstances. And we hope and pray that very, very soon we will see them all returned home, um, as this month actually has a beautiful overlay, certainly from a Hasidic point of view, from a Chabad Hasidic point of view, more particularly of Geula, of Redemption. And as we said, please God, it should come speedily for them. So let's start by talking about a man known in Chabad circles as the Mittler Rebbe. He was known as the Middle Rebbe. Now that was probably because <clears throat> he passed away very young. He was only 54 when he uh, left this world. Um, and his father had been the Rebbe before him and his son-in-law became Rebbe after him. And so kind of in the middle, they were obviously Hasidim who had been um, Hasidim of the Alter Rebbe and then the Mittler Rebbe and then the Rebbe himself uh, that followed thereafter. And therefore he became known as the Middle Rebbe. But ultimately in the Chabad um, lineup of Rabbeim, of Rebbes, he was Rebbe number two. He was the son of the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneel Zaman of Liadi, of course, the founder of Chabad Hasidism, and um, he was named Reb Dovber. He was known as Reb Dovber of Lubavitch, his name Dovber, being named after his father's Rebbe, who was uh, the Magid of Mezrich, his name was Dovber. So, uh, the today, the 9th of Kislev, is actually the birthday and the Yorzeit birthday and the day of passing, 54 years later, of Rabbi Dov Ber of Lubavitch, was the son of, and the successor to the founder of Chabad Hasidism, Rabbi Shneer Zaman of Liadi. Now, Rabbi Dov Ber was known for his unique style of what is termed broadening the rivers. His teachings were the intellectual rivers, we are told, to his father's wellspring, and giving them length and breadth. Um, and, of course, to the principles set down by his father, by Rabbi Shneel Zalman. He was born in Lyozhna in White Russia in 1773, named after, as we said, Rabbi Shneel Zalman's mentor and teacher, Rabbi Tovber of Mezrich, who'd passed away on the 19th of Kislev of the previous year 
in the year before he was born, so Rabbi Dov Ber assumed the leadership of Chabad. Upon his father's passing in 1812, in 1813, he settled back in the town of Lubavitch, which was to serve as the movement's headquarters for the next 102 years. So that's where Lubavitch actually began. This, by the way, Lubavitch is known as the town of love. It was the place of love. Um, and, of course, the 102 years that Chabad Hasidim spent there um, gave the town a new meaning and gave the Hasidim. Um, of course, a new meaning of that town of love. That's where they came from. In 1826, he was arrested, and this is what we wanted to speak about now. He was arrested on charges that his teachings threatened the imperial authority of the Tsar. But he was subsequently exonerated. And Rabbi Dovber passed away on his 50th, 54th birthday in 1827, a day before the first anniversary of his liberation. Now, if we then turn over the page and we look at tomorrow, tomorrow is um, the 10th of Kislev, and that is the date on which um, Rabbi Dovber of Lubavitch, the Mittler Rebbe, was actually released. He was redeemed. It was a day of redemption. In 1826, Rabbi Dovber of Lubavitch was arrested, as we said, on charges that his teachings threatened the authority of the Tsar. He was exonerated, and the date of his release was the 10th of Kislev, which is tomorrow, and it's celebrated amongst Chabad Chassidim as a festival of liberation. And in Chabad uh, Shul's um, tonight and tomorrow, Tachanun will not be said. Um, Fabrengans are held, and the, study, the teachings of Rabbi Dov Ber um, are preferred study material. Now, if we take a look at the story about the arrest and liberation of the Mittler Rebbe, of this Rabbi Dovber of Lubavitch. It is quite a fascinating story of exactly what happened, how it all transpired, and then eventually how he was actually released. Um, and it's a really difficult story for us to comprehend. You know, we think about today of people being taken against their will into captivity or of people um, being arrested on charges that have some substance. But um, the Mittler Rebbe, Rabbi uh, Dovber of Lubavitch, was arrested on literally trumped-up charges um, by people who were jealous of his position, people who didn't like um, the family. And in fact, it actually came out that a lot of this had to do with some kind of politics between a family that thought that um, they had been kind of, um, I don't know, overlooked as possible marriage partners to marry into uh, the Mittler Rebbe's family um, and, in fact, um, were a little upset, angry, felt uh, vilified by the whole thing, and they um, trumped up certain charges against the Mittler Rebbe. Now, we've got to remember, if we go into the background of the Rebbe's of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneel Zaman of Liadi, was actually at the end of his life, very favored by the Tsar. And what had happened was during the war with Napoleon, the famous Napoleon uh, War and um, his onslaught onto Russia, um, where, of course, uh, the famous Russian scorched earth policy uh, became uh, well known and uh, that attrition actually managed to thwart the attacks of the French, of uh, Napoleon and so on. Uh, the Alter Rebbe was a great supporter of Russia in those days and actually uh, got all his Hasidim to 
uh, follow in that way and was largely viewed as being one of the catalysts, if not the catalyst, um, in the undoing of Napoleon. Um, there are famous um, spiritual things that are attributed to the Alter Rebbe at that time. But um, he was certainly in the good books of the Tsar, and the Tsar regarded the Rebbe and his family as a royalty, gave them certain privileges and so on. And then, out of the blue, it was um, during the festival of Sukkot in the year 5587, which is um, 1826, um, the news came that the Mittler Rebbe was going to be investigated. And the trumped-up charges were actually said to be against the Tsar, when in fact that ultimately was really all about money. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So certainly all good arguments uh, between people uh, usually have something to do with money. And uh, the charges against the Mittler Rebbe were born out of a monetary dispute as well. Well, what had happened? The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneer Zaman of Liadi, had passed away um, while he was traveling. It's quite a famous story how he had actually uh, literally died on the road on a, a, a trip that, we, that he was taking and was brought back for burial um, by uh, the only two people who happened to be with him at the time. Um, a very, very um, interesting, fascinating, difficult uh, kind of a story as well. But in the interim, all of his possessions had been stolen. His house had been burned to the ground. And in fact, the Alter Rebbe had left really nothing of uh, personal value when, um, if in a physical sense, when uh, his son then, the Dorev Adov Bear, had to uh, kind of start up a, a, again the uh, community, etc. He relied quite heavily on donations from people and on his travels around, uh, people would give money towards the cause. He appointed a committee, a, a few Hasidim who were charged with looking after this money. It was a few thousand rubles, um, which was a significant sum. However, it was meant to be distributed and particularly distributed to uh, poor people. People were absolutely living in abject poverty, both there as well as in Israel. And here comes another little fly in the ointment. Some monies had been sent um, to Israel from this um, group and from the Hasidim there to support <coughs> the poor people of Eretz Yisrael, of Israel at the time. However, um, as fate would have it, uh, at that time, Israel was governed uh, by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, Turkey and so on, were actually at uh, loggerheads with Russia, and therefore um, this was viewed as support for the Turks against, or for the Ottoman Empire against Russia, um, a little bit of a a, a dispute uh, that uh, came up from that as well. But then, to make matters worse, one of the Hasidim who was tasked with looking after this money, with looking after this fund, actually uh, uh, passed away. He was childless, but he had a nephew who was a, a bit of a gangster, a fraudster, a mobster, whatever you want to call it. He managed to go through his uh, deceased uncle's possessions and found a letter which he then used as blackmail against the Mittler Rebbe, claiming that uh, there was a huge amount of money that was actually collected and that his uh, father 
that his uh, that his uncle was actually one of the trustees. It should be in a family inheritance and so on. But um, when he uh, threatened the Mittler Rebbe with this, the Mittler Rebbe rebuffed him, um, sent him packing, sent him on his way, said it absolutely wasn't true. It was uh, nothing like what he was claiming. But he managed to find some sinister partners, as I mentioned in the introduction, people who felt that they should have been um, shown the respect of a marriage uh, proposal um, within the, uh, the Alter Rebbe, the Mittler Rebbe's family. That didn't happen. They became parties to this attempted blackmail. And in fact, what they did was they took the letter and they changed one or two numbers on the letter. Instead of it having uh, being a few thousand ruble, they added um, a uh, the number 100 in the front of every reference to the amount. So it became a few hundred thousand ruble. Um, and, uh, of course, then wanting to know what happened to this money and why so little was distributed and that actually it uh, should have gone to his uncle and so on, they started a whole campaign. And um, in order to magnify their point, they went to some of their friends in high places in government, and an investigation was started <coughs> by the Russian authorities into the Mittler Rebbe. It actually came from there, but the point that they added was clearly the Mittler Rebbe, with his contacts with the Ottoman Empire, with um, all this money that he had collected, was actually planning some kind of a revolution. Now, doesn't this sound all too familiar? It is something that um, is just so sickening, uh, but yet um, how much weight it actually carries. And even then, you think about the concept of trumped-up charges, you think about the concept of misinformation, you think about the concept of just a little bit of fraud um, that uh, gets you all the attention from governments, from people around the world, from all sorts of sinister places, and then began the investigation into the Mittler Rebbe. And the Mittler Rebbe eventually was um, arrested. Um, however, what had happened was because of his uh, position in the community, as we mentioned before, the Alter Rebbe had um, done so good for the Tsar that there was uh, family privilege and so on, um, it was arranged by the Hasidim of the Mittler Rebbe that if he was going to be taken in for interrogation, they wanted him to go from Dumbavich to Vitebsk, where he was going to be interrogated, where he was going to have some kind of a trial. And um, <coughs> it only then became apparent what the charges actually were. It was uh, going to be um, planning an overthrow of the government, some kind of a revolution, and it all came from these trumped-up and fraudulent documents and so on. Um, the uh, Hasidim arranged for the Mittler Rebbe to actually travel in, in inverted commas, in luxury, um, that he wasn't going to be arrested and taken in a uh, prisoner's uh, van or uh, carriage uh, to Vitebsk, that, that the journey was going to be spread out over a few days, that it was going to go uh, uh, first to a nearby town and from there to another one and so on before making the so that it wasn't too taxing on him. Clearly at that age already, uh, as we said, it was a year before he passed away. He wasn't well. He wasn't a very healthy.
healthy, strong man, and they were worried about his health on this arduous journey, um, of course, with all the charges. But, of course, uh, when the uh, day came in the middle of Cheshvan that he was actually um, um, officially arrested when the officers arrived, they treated the Mittler Rebbe with great respect, and they enabled him to travel um, together with his entourage, and they said it was something spectacular. There was this royalty kind of a an event that all the townspeople, Jews and non-Jews alike, um, because the Mittler Rebbe was very highly respected by the non-Jewish community as well as the Hasidim um, in the town of Lubavitch and its surrounds. And then as they went to Dobromisul and as they then went from town to town, from place to place, there was this huge entourage that actually accompanied him and uh, people moving the people were devastated, they were upset, they were sad, um, of course, that uh, the Rebbe had been, and this great man, this great spiritual leader, had been uh, taken in for questioning, that he was being arrested, that there were these charges that he was facing. There was all of that to contend with and to think about, but uh, they wanted to accompany the, the Rebbe, and it became this kind of royal procession as he went from place to place and was greeted by the townsfolk um, as he traveled along in style in his own um, arranged carriage with his own um, uh, people around him, and the officers, of course, moving together with him in a separate uh, wagon and so on. Um, now, when you think about enemies, people who are campaigning for your arrest and so on, when they got wind of this, when they heard about this, they were really, really upset about it. It was something that got them extremely nervous, and they used their influence with their people in high places to have this whole parade, because it was a, a royal parade that was now accompanying the Mittler Rebbe to uh, Vitebsk for this um, trial, for this um, indictment that he had to face um, on these charges. He himself was in great spirits. They said he was smiling. He would uh, teach uh, Hasidus. He would say a maimer. He would do a Hasidic discourse in the places that he arrived in and so on, eventually arriving in Vitebsk after three days, um, which should have just been a one and a half or a two day journey. Um, they spread it out. He eventually arrived there. But by the time he got there, um, these people against him had actually campaigned to their people in high places and they'd had things altered that um, he wasn't going to be allowed, as he had thought, to spend the time in a um, in a private home. He wasn't going to be allowed to have all his chassidim around him. He was going to be taken in and they made the concession that his son could go with him <coughs> and a, a an appointed hand-picked uh, three um, Hasidim, three of his uh, closest followers, um, could go with him and spend the time in a room inside um, a prison um, uh, holding area rather than uh, being in a private environment. So, of course, it was something that was terrible for the Hasidim to see. It was terrible for the Rebbe to have to go through. It was an incarceration that shouldn't have been. And when finally it all came about that um, after a couple of weeks, after a few weeks of uh, people not knowing what was going on, there was absolute, well, it didn't have to be a news blackout in those days. Uh, there was no news uh, opportunities for people. It was if the authorities didn't say anything, nobody knew anything. There was no uh, way of communicating. The only thing that was allowed apparently was they allowed food to be brought to him every day. Um, but no uh, conversation was allowed. They could drop it off with one of the Hasidim. They brought it in. They brought it in with, under prison guard. It was uh, given to the Mittler Rebbe and to his 
then an entourage who sat with him inside that uh, prison. They were there for a good few weeks um, in this uh, darkness of not really knowing and all the people outside not really knowing what was uh, what had transpired, what was going to transpire. And then um, the moment of truth came. There was a hearing, and in this hearing, uh, they called the main protagonist, the person who had actually uh, brought these trumped-up charges. He was brought um, with the case to uh, see if this document could stand up. Um, the Mittler Rebbe, of course, denied that that document was uh, the genuine number, that in fact it had been forged. He tried to show how um, the numbers had been altered to make it look like a lot more money, etc. Um, he explained where that money was going, that he was doing absolutely nothing wrong, that there was nothing uh, to be charged about or for when it came to uh, this particular uh, charge. And then eventually this fellow had to come face to face with a Mittler Rebbe and by some kind of a slip of the tongue, when he was accusing the Mittler Rebbe of being a fraudster and not being the Rebbe and so on, he refused, he referred to him as Rebbe. But the Rebbe said, as uh, <laughs> a strange sign of respect coming from that kind of a place, um, which uh, the Mittler Rebbe pounced on and said, you see, he knows the truth um, and he is clouded by uh, the non-truth of his fraud. Um, and, of course, it didn't take long before <clears throat> the charges were dropped and word spread very quickly uh, that uh, the Rebbe was going to be released. He was released, in fact, tomorrow is the anniversary. He was released um, in 1826. It was 1826 on Yud Kislev, on the 10th day of Kislev, which is tomorrow. That was the day of his redemption. Of course, word spread then throughout the Hasidim, throughout all of um, the uh, strongholds of the Hasidim around uh, Russia, around uh, Ukraine, around Europe, and so on. And it became a day of Geula, a day of redemption. And as I said, when these days of redemption come about um, on a particular day, and we talk about them as being days of redemption, we've got to know, and we do know as Jews, that um, these days of redemption keep on coming back as days of redemption. And please, God, um, it should be a day of redemption um, tomorrow, uh, not only for those who they are saying may be um, released um, tomorrow, but in fact, people should be, and all the hostages should be released, and we should have a gu'ula, not only within ourselves and not only for them, but in fact, it should lead from one gu'ula to the other, to the next gu'ula. This gu'ula, this redemption, should actually lead to the ultimate redemption, the redemption that we hope and pray for that will happen speedily in our time with the coming of Mashiach immediately. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So while we're talking about uh, things to do with liberation, uh, the Chag Geula and so on that we have spoken about that happens tomorrow for the Mittler Rebbe, um, we always know that these things don't come about. They don't come about without our input. And what is it that we can do? Well, um, we need to make sure, of course, as the Hasidim of old did, that they would study Torah, that they would say Tehillim. And uh, while there were those out there who were campaigning sort of on a political level, the uh, general uh, rank and file people 
uh, back at, at home, back at the ranch, had to see to it that they were doing all the spiritual things to bring about some kind of a gula, some kind of a redemption from above, mina shamayim. And we've got to remember that everything in this world is obviously controlled by and in the hands of Hashem. It's in the hands of God. Akol bidei shamayim. Everything is in God's hands. And since everything is in God's hands, both the good as well as the things that we perceive, of course, to be really bad, terrible, non, not good things. We've got to ultimately remember that everything is in God's hands. Why God causes certain things to happen is not um, kind of on this agenda. It's not what we're talking about here. And, uh, yes, honestly, there are some things that we really don't see and we don't know. But what we ultimately know is that everything that happens in this world <coughs> is um, God is in charge and he ultimately is the one who can and will change these negative, evil, terrible decrees that seem to be stacked up against us, against so many people, and particularly against those who are being held against their will in Gaza, in Israel. So the um, ultimate thing that we need to, to do is on two levels. Number one is the concept of prayer. Now, I'm not sure if... Um, we all actually realize just how powerful our tefillot, our prayers, are, how powerful they can be. Um, and on level number one, I'd like to take a message that was given actually by Mr. Natan Sharansky recently. And he told of the fact that when he was held in uh, Russia against his will, Refusnik, um, uh, the thing that really um, was top of the agenda of his uh, prison guards, of his captors, of his interrogators, was to continually remind him that the world didn't care, to keep on telling him that nobody out there thinks about you, that you've gone off the agenda, that nobody cares, that nobody uh, gives a hoot whether you're going to sit here, whether you're not going to sit here, whether you're alive, whether you're dead. Uh, they kept on reminding him of that. And every time there was a message that he received that um, they had been uh, some there'd been a prayer service for him. There'd been something that people had done for uh, the people um, in his position and for him particularly. Uh, the campaign that his wife famously ran um, to uh, promote and get interest. That was what actually kept him going. The fact that people cared. So number one is the message that we care is something that um, is communicated and will be communicated loud and clear. To those who are held there, to those who feel or think that nobody cares, and you're going to ask, well, how? Well, how is it communicated? It's uh, pretty obviously, of course, communicated by the fact that um, there's been a bombardment, there's been a war, um, and uh, no matter what, those people must have heard those sounds. They must have, um, they must know. There must be a knowledge. Um, although some of them are very young, um, that there are people looking for them, that there are people coming for them um, in order to save them. But at the same time, our our prayers, um, according to Hasidic teaching, a prayer that is uttered um, actually has the ability to traverse all sorts of media. It has a way of uh, getting through to the right places. And very often in the same way as a person 
um, when you think about somebody, um, um, it will turn around. You know, you think about somebody or you um, are uh, looking at somebody, they turn around, they feel that gaze, they feel that a thought, and very often I'm sure it's happened to you, you're thinking about somebody that you haven't spoken to for a long time and uh, suddenly the phone will ring or uh, whatever or they'll send you a message. There is some kind of, in inverted commas, mental telepathy. And if we only knew how to tap into that properly, um, it would uh, help us tremendously. Well, we have that power. We have that ability not only to send those messages out into the world and to God, which we'll talk about in a moment, but actually to have those people in mind. It is of paramount importance in our tefillot, in our prayers, in our tehillim and the things that we say and the things that we do, that telepathy will certainly stand them in good stead. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So just to kind of sum up, let's think about the power of our tefillot, the power of our prayers. Our prayers, the things that we say, not only can make people feel that we are thinking about them, but in fact if we use the, um, you know, I guess modern science has taught us the value of the ability to beam something up to a satellite and that satellite can beam it down. Um, in another realm, in another place, in another country. It's always still fascinating, certainly to me, I'm sure to you as well, how we can see live pictures um, coming to us from uh, from overseas. It's, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling to think about how that is transmitted and how technology actually works. Uh, we take it so much for granted, but yet it does work. Well, it's all a great analogy for things that Torah has always told us about Praying to God, you know, we can pray to God for people and for things that are far away from us, for peace in Israel, for the return of the hostages, for the success of our soldiers. We can dive into Hashem for all of those things. Well, how does it actually work? Well, we're beaming up a prayer, a request to God, and God beams down the result, um, the success um, of and the uh, the healing that our prayers can and should be geared towards and can bring in a completely different realm, a completely different place, if it can work between me and you in a way of mental telepathy, how much more so does it work and can it work in our prayers as we beam them up to God and he beams them down um, for their success in a different realm, in a different place. How wonderful this actually is, how wonderful it can be. And please God, it should have the uh, desired result. And that, of course, is, as we were mentioning before, that we're in this month of Geula, this month of redemption. There is another Chag HaGeula that is going to come up. We'll speak about it next week. Another festival of redemption. If it's a time of redemption for great tzaddikim, for great and righteous people, it ultimately will be a time of redemption hopefully, for those who need to be redeemed, for those who will be redeemed. And uh, please, God, ultimately, for each and every one of us, uh, with the Geula Shlema, with the complete redemption, which we hope comes speedily, very, very soon in our time. I want to wish you a great Shabbat up ahead, a great rest of the week. Look forward to chatting with you again, same time, same place, next week on Judaism 101.9.